South on WUNC, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. I'm Jeff Tiberi. Time as usual for our Friday North Carolina News and Politics Roundtable discussion. Joining me here in the studio are Liz Schlemmer, WUNC education reporter, Will Doran, WRAL state government reporter, Monica Casey, WRAL's Durham reporter, and on the line from the Washington, D.C. metro area, Danielle Battaglia, Capitol Hill correspondent at the News and Observer. Greetings, squad. Thanks, y'all, for being here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Hello. Context, analysis, review, plenty of questions coming to you this hour. We're going to get going with some of our sounds of the week. Universal. High-speed internet in all of North Carolina by the end of this decade. Hundreds of Durham Public School staff crowded into a meeting today to demand to know why they recently received notice that their pay would be reduced. No solution, no school! We do not want the people of this county to be poisoned by anybody. And unfortunately, some of these chemicals that are out there have a tendency to do just that. Lee Roberts is on day four of leading UNC Chapel Hill as its interim chancellor. He replaced Kevin Guskowitz, who stepped down last week. Another UNC System school will have a leadership change. NC Central University Chancellor Johnson Akinlea announced today he's retiring. Mark Robinson, he suggested the Holocaust wasn't real downplayed the Nazis, promoted Hitler propaganda. That's just plain wrong. Joe Biden touched down in the Triangle Thursday. That's also where a bit of a fiasco is playing out in the Durham Public Schools. On the coast, the issue of contaminated drinking water attributable to PFAS spilled into court this week. And one GOP contender takes aim at Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. Will it matter? We'll get to that and uh, much more, I think, maybe here uh, in the next hour or so. Let's begin with the 46th president, Joe Biden. Will, what's the main takeaway or news note from Biden's visit to the Triangle on Thursday? Well, this was officially a White House visit, um, but I think it's, you know, it's 2024. Everything's about the campaign, right? Even if it's an official visit, it's a campaign thing. And... Republicans have been hitting Biden hard for basically his entire presidency on rising inflation. Mm -hmm. And so he has coined this term Bidenomics to try to push back on that and say, hey, actually, you know, the economy is doing well. Yes, inflation has been up, but, you know, jobs have been growing, you know, just at kind of an exponential rate uh, during his presidency. And, you know, some of these other economic factors that, you know, the stock market is doing fine. And so he says, yeah, you know, okay, sure. You know, let's not talk about inflation. Let's talk about Bidenomics. Mm. And so that's what he was here to talk about was. uh, Right. Just that Bidenomics. I want to play with this a little bit. And you tell me if it it maybe struck a similar chord or tone for you. I can't help but think of, you know, the divisiveness, the divisiveness of the Affordable Care Act. And at some point in 2011 or 2012, the 44th president, Barack Obama, just owned Obamacare. And he embraced it and he wrapped his arms around it from a messaging standpoint. And Bidenomics is something that this president is trying to get the American people or some American people to be warmer to. Uh, It's unclear yet if if it's working or if it's going to work. And the, the great kind of juxtaposition to dichotomy to me is the economic indicators are that the economy is doing pretty well. You look at unemployment, the stock market, things you note here. Um... What did I, I want to note quickly off the top just what some of the Republicans said about his visit uh, here um, on Thursday? 
if you if you caught that Phil Berger well, and company. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, you know just as much as uh, you know his actual speech on the economy. Uh, you know, people also paid attention to uh, his cookout order. Uh, he, he went right. to he went to cookout with uh, Governor Roy Cooper. They got milkshakes even though it was like forty degrees outside. Um, and uh, you know, uh, uh, Senate Republican leader uh, Phil Berger, I, I saw tweeted out uh, that you know uh, cookout menu prices have risen twenty eight percent since uh, Biden took office, and he said, "There's your Bidenomics for you." So again, you know, it's just relentlessly on message. You know, Republicans want to talk about inflation. Biden wants to talk about everything but inflation. All right, a serious uh, clip here coming in a second, but before that, I will be unserious and note that it is a shame that cookout doesn't have hot chocolate. They really ought to have hot chocolate. Here's something more serious from Biden's visit on Thursday. Over the next three years, over 300,000 homes and businesses all across North Carolina will be connected with affordable, high-speed Internet. We're investing another $82 million to connect 16,000 additional homes and businesses, bringing high-speed Internet all across the state of North Carolina from top to bottom. Clap line, high-speed Internet, broadband. These are big things. We've been hearing about them for a long time. Uh, do we have any indication that this is actually moving people at this point? If this, I mean, there's so much in the ecosystem, and I don't mean to like downplay a president visiting North Carolina, but it's like oh, $82 million. Like, can you synthesize this in another way that maybe is going to spark me a little bit, Will? Well, I, I think this is a, a big bipartisan push. Um, I mean, you know, Jeff, we've seen this at the legislature. Republicans in the state legislature here have put a lot of money into broadband internet as well. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, here now we have, you know, Democrats pushing for it as well. And, you know, this is something that, uh, is really aimed at rural North Carolina, and there are Republicans who live in rural North Carolina. There are Democrats who live in rural North Carolina, and you know, even though you know, it may seem you know partisan if you have you know a president of a certain party pushing this thing. This is yeah. something that does have kind of some bipartisan support, and you know, it's just you know, it's good to have internet in this day and age we live in. You know, I mean, you know, with so much school being mm-hmm. online, you know, if kids can't get on the internet, they can't necessarily do their homework, you know, look up the YouTube videos that their teachers want them to watch, you know, what have you, and help small businesses as well. So, you know, there's there's plenty of use cases yeah. for this. And I would contend not just good, it's necessary at this yeah. point. Like, you have to have access um, to good, reliable, high-speed internet. Uh, I want to welcome in Danielle Battaglia from Washington, D.C., into our conversation here, North Carolina Friday News Roundup on Due South. Uh, we, of course, had politics and policy crossing over the intersection here in North Carolina this week. At the same time, we had uh, the first in the nation caucuses, which we can touch on a little bit if you would like. Uh, but I want to note what is not going to happen tonight at midnight, and that is a government shutdown averted again. A short-term spending measure will kick things to March, and uh, government remains open. How surprised are you, Danielle, that they did come to this, I don't know, 10th or 11th hour agreement? I'm surprised that it happened Thursday instead of Friday. Um, I feel like I talk about this every three months at this point, right? Um, But what was interesting, and I was in the chamber for these votes yesterday, and um, we are currently being hit with a snowstorm. And so the House said, we're taking this up Thursday instead of Friday. Grateful that I'm not out in the snow today dealing with this. Um, But... They moved quickly. The Senate passed it in the mid-afternoon, I want to say, and the House immediately took it up. Once again, the House Freedom Caucus, which I say every three months, is very angry at this deal. They feel like if we had a government shutdown, people would feel the pain of what a government shutdown would do to America. 
and they'd be able to lobby for what they actually want. And so they kind of want to go that direction and have a government shutdown. They try to do it. They tried to uh, get people on their side to actually make this vote not happen last night, but they were able to pull enough Democrats and Republicans to pull the uh, vote through to basically continue it through March. Just some quick context that I think a lot of our listeners know, but I like to remind them from time to time. That Freedom Caucus that you mentioned, it was co-founded by North Carolina Congressman Mark Meadows, who then, of course, later became chief of staff to Donald Trump, and Jim Jordan, who was there for, I don't know, eight and a half minutes or so in the running to become the next speaker of the U.S. House. But this hardline conservative group, the Freedom Caucus, has really upended some of the normal functions of government across the last decade. It's not new. They forced Speaker John Boehner out a few years ago. Uh, and this is this is, you know, just their their M.O. at this point when it comes to spending issues. Danielle, I'm curious, how close was the vote uh, in the House and or the Senate? And I, I'm interested if there were any North Carolina congressional delegation members, uh, the 16, the 14 House members and the two U.S. senators who cast any votes that surprised you uh, with this averting of the, the the shutdown. So in the Senate, we were 77 to 18, and in the House, we were 314 to 108. I think there was a couple um, not voting members in there, too. However, um, so we had only two people vote to not pass this continuing resolution. That was our two Bs, Ted Budd and uh, Dan Bishop. I am a little surprised Dan Bishop went that way, which I know would surprise listeners hearing me say that, because he has not lately always voted with the House Freedom Caucus, which both of them have been members of. Dan Dan Bishop currently is a member of, he is a member of the Rep- House of Representatives. Senator Budd, now that he's in the Senate, cannot be a member, but was until he took office. And so um, now that Bishop is running for attorney general in North Carolina, he has not always been voting with the Freedom Caucus. So I wasn't sure what he was going to do last night, but he did make that vote. Ted Budd, of course, uh, just won election to the U.S. Senate in 2022. He's not up for a long time. When you're not up for a long time, I think you have a little bit more freedom to vote on things uh, as perhaps your conscience, as they like to say, uh, guides you. Uh, Danielle, just uh, maybe 30 seconds or so, uh, any quick reaction on what happened in Iowa this week, the margin of it? And this is really a stretch. I'll admit that, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Any impact on North Carolina or the North Carolina congressional delegation based on the um, the Iowa caucuses on the Republican side? I would say I'm not surprised by the results. I think everyone expected Trump to take Iowa. Um, I think we're still there was a lot of different elements in Iowa, like the weather and turnout. And so I'm really actually interested in New Hampshire before I decide what I think it means to North Carolina. All right. Friday news roundup, North Carolina style here on Due South. We've got Danielle Battaglia, Will Doran, Monica Casey and Liz Schlemmer. On the other side, we're going to talk about money and payment and schools. Imagine for a moment that uh, your paycheck increased and you were getting a little bit more each month, a few hundred bucks, maybe a couple thousand bucks. And then your employer comes to you and says, oops, that's a problem. We didn't mean to do that. You can't have that money anymore. That's precisely what has played out with some staff in the Durham Public Schools this week. We'll give you the details on the other side. This is Due South on North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Welcome back. It's Due South on WUNC. On this day 66 years ago, a story out of North Carolina landed on the front page above the fold of the New York Times the night before. The KKK showed up in Maxton, a small town in Robeson County. Their intent was to intimidate and harass Lumbee and black residents. 
I'm going to let Charles Graham, a former state lawmaker and member of the Lumbee tribe, take the story from there. The police chief warned the Grand Dragon, these people don't want your trouble. The Klansmen called us mongrels, half-breeds, and told him the Klan would show him how to handle people like us. That night, they rolled in with their cars, their crosses, and a single light bulb hooked to a car battery. 50 Klansmen. Not a bad turnout on a cold night. Problem is, they were surrounded by 400 Lumbees. Seminoxendine had been a tail gunner in a B-29 during the war. Verdia Locklear was four months pregnant. Neil Lowry was the local barber. Hundreds of normal folks deciding to stand together against ignorance and hate. Lowry shot out the light. The Klansmen scattered. By the time the sheriff arrived to fish them out of the swamp, the press was running with the story. The Battle of Hayes Pond, where one town beat the Klan. A piece of forgotten history worth remembering, especially today. That was Charles Graham, a Democrat from Robeson County. He served in the State House for several terms and then ran for Congress unsuccessfully two years ago. Full disclosure, that clip was actually part of a campaign video uh, that was produced for his campaign back in 2022. But the important note here, the forgotten history, the Battle of Hayes Pond, January 18, 1966, in Robeson County. And we like to... Uh, include some of these uh, perhaps lesser known historical moments and chapters in North Carolina history, Southern history. And if you ever have one for us, please send it along, south at wunc.org. We will certainly attribute it uh, if you pass one uh, along. Okay, back to the panel and our North Carolina news and politics roundup. A mess in the Durham public schools began this week when the district sent notification to 1,300 classified staff that they have been overpaid for six months. The correspondence, which arrived via email on a holiday, informed bus mechanics, occupational therapists, janitorial staff, and cafeteria workers, among others, that they would no longer be receiving recent pay increases. Now, these locally funded raises were significant, see, large, and they came after the district hired an outside consultant to study pay in an effort to make pay more equitable. DPS has a long-standing practice of honoring relevant experience at private employers or yeah employers as it uh, as if it were state service, and the district has now done something of an about face. Liz, I'm going to let you take it from here. I think you summarized it really well, but basically what happened for a lot of these employees, 1,300 employees over the weekend received individualized emails saying, you know, this is the numbers of years of state service that the school district has been honoring and we're changing it from x to y some some employees were seeing decreases of 10 20 years of experience so this this has to do with how the salary schedules work here right in the salary state. schedules which i didn't notice in that uh context so let's liz look at one specific example a physical therapist i believe you talked to this week or somebody uh who has worked uh, in the private sector worked at duke university uh but also in the school system. Yes. Yeah, so um, Barb Tapper is uh, one of the people who was speaking at this at this town hall yesterday who said uh, that she had something like 30 years of experience. It was bumped down 11. But she's saying, I worked in Durham Public Schools that entire time, um, but the school district used to contract through Duke. Um, so it was, a, it was a private employer. But she's saying, I worked in these schools 
next to all of you with the same students, and that's no longer being honored. But the crux of this really is that uh, that all of these employees recently received significant raises, um, and that ultimately is w- what is being taken away. Liz, you've been on this story most of the week. Monica, you've been on this story most of the week. Give us a sense, if you have some examples of how much money are we talking here? How much more were people receiving in their paychecks and soon perhaps not going to be receiving in their paychecks? Yeah, Barb Taffer is a great example. She told me she's going to be getting under this new system $1,600 less a month. I mean, that's a ton of money. I spoke with a plumber yesterday as well who has been with DPS for about seven years but has almost 30 years of experience in the private sector. He told me he's going to be losing $12,000 a year And I think it's you noted this, but it's important to note as well that a lot of this money has already been spent by people. I spoke with a woman yesterday who bought a new car because her family's car broke down. She commutes 45 minutes to work as an instructional assistant in Durham. Uh, That's not money she can get back now. I mean, I've heard that people got loans based on their new salaries. People were potentially taking out new mortgages, buying cars. This is money that they have already been spending because... They have known for months or they have been told for months, this is your new salary. Your monthly budget is your monthly budget. And if if you have a household income of 80 or 140 or $300,000, whatever it may be, and just to be clear, I don't believe there are public educators who are making $300,000 a year. But if you have an uptick in what you're bringing home each month, I don't I'm, – I'm, this is going to be, you know, mansplain central here. Like – you can just do more with that money, right? Like you can go buy a different house potentially or a car. Like yeah, I'm just you can get running a loan. this back to you. You can get a loan. And then to have that rug pulled out from from underneath you, that uh, to me is uh, – that that. here's my question. How did this happen? So – and I just – I want to like maybe put a finer point on it. So they're occupational therapists and physical therapists and people who have worked in the private sector. And as they uh, are also working for DPS, they're getting credit for years spent. And some of the, the that credit has been rolled back here. And some of this equitable pay that these folks have been receiving for years is going to be rolled back. But, but like, Months, at least. I'm sorry, yeah. months, months, yeah. months. But how, how does this – how is this happening? Like what has – what led to a raise and then the reversal of a raise? Did they not have the money? Did they actually – look at what the consultant said and said, this is actually a terrible report. Like, why is DPS doing this? We haven't received clear answers from Durham Public Schools about how this happened exactly. Um, So there was a salary study by a consultancy. um, And I... do you have do you it's, have better answers, Monica? Because that's I really feel like million we're still asking. Question. Yeah, <laughs> okay. that's really the million dollar question. But I'm not missing something. You're not. Um, DPS has repeatedly repeatedly said their intent with this salary study was to get to fair pay. Obviously, those words ring a little hollow for the people now who are losing hundreds of dollars a month. But the goal with the salary study was to get more money in people's pockets. The district claims there was an overpayment error and that that's not right what these people have received. And another question that stems from that, will they have to pay the money back? Not just are they going to get paid less in their next paycheck on January 26th. Do these people owe $16,000 to the district? We don't know. They I, I am not a lawyer and I will not pretend to play one on the um, the, the radio. We'll Doran is married to a lawyer, which is a, you know, a wonderful thing. A very good one. Uh, a very good one. A very good one. Hello, Mrs. Doran, if she did, in fact, take your name. Um, 
Will, remind us here, if you recall, I have this recollection that there is a state law that if you're overpaid, the money has to be returned. Like that's that's just a law that exists. Can you speak to that or not? This came up in the context of some uh, state retirees recently. The the treasurer's office uh, said, hey, we just discovered that due to a mistake years, maybe even a decade or more ago, we've accidentally been paying you too much in your pension and you need to give that back. And, um, I mean, people were hit with massive bills, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And, you know, these people are, you know, retired in their, you know, 60s and 70s on a fixed income. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, the government will go after people sometimes for this money and, you know, the, take you to court for it. And, you know, people have been fighting in the press and in court, you know, to, to try to come to some sort of resolution. But, yeah, I mean, it's it, th- this could just be the, the start of a a whole situation for for Durham here. Excuse my snarkiness on the front end, but you almost need like a new budgetary line, right? Like you've got your mortgage, you've got your childcare payments, you've got your groceries, you've got your savings, and now you should just tuck away maybe three to five percent in case of a government failure, and you need to revert and and, and return the money to them years later. Right for, the for something extra, that's I no mean, fault of your own. No, you that, know, right? I mean, that's like, the point. My understanding is that Durham Public Schools attorneys are working on this question. Mm. I mean, we haven't received an answer on as to whether it, or not as whether or not they would have okay. to pay back. I know that it's something that the Durham Association of Educators is asking that there not be a repayment. I also know that um, there are employees who say there is a state law that says that you have to be notified a full paycheck in advance mm. if there is a reduction in your pay. So another ask from the association is that that everyone receive January paychecks that are the same as their December paychecks because they weren't given that month of notice. Got it. So to make sure I've got that there, these 1,300 or so uh, support staff received a letter on Monday, MLK Day, that their January paychecks were going to be reduced. But per state law, they need to receive at least 30 days notice before there's a reduction in their paycheck. Is that right? Yes, that's a state law. Okay. I want to uh, turn to a moment and uh, listen to some of those who have been affected, or at least one uh, woman who's been affected, Octavia Smith as an instructional assistant at Hillside High School. And yesterday there was uh, something of a town hall meeting, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, and Octavia Smith was one of the speakers. So for you to take back the money that you all happily gave us, and then y'all take it back and say, go to work and do what y'all supposed to do? No, we're not. We're tired. So from here on out, you all will get the bare minimum. You all want to give us the bare minimum? You will get the bare minimum. I mean, you want to talk about motivation or cohesion or morale like this obviously is, is a punch in the gut to the overall functionality of, of many schools. Uh, there was a town hall meeting yesterday. Uh, what can you tell us about it? Who called this and what what transpired? Monica? Well, this meeting was called by the district for employees to come in and get answers. They said they were going to hold two of these meetings this week, one Tuesday afternoon, one Thursday morning. It was initially billed as a meeting where staff could come speak one-on-one with district leaders, but 1,300 staff, that's a lot of meetings. This turned into a bigger town hall meeting. Uh, The issue came when a lot of school board members also showed up, and because of the number of school board members there, we were allowed to be there as well. Well, I mean, initially we were asked to leave. Um, You're being kind, Monica. You're being kind. So, well, let let me set the backdrop here. I was not at this meeting yesterday, but this is something of an impromptu town hall. And you, as reporters, as journalists, are in this room. You were asked to leave this room, and then you you got back in. 
I don't like the word yes. sneak. So it was it was a, a large room. It was packed with people. I initially walked in with everyone else um, and was tapped on the shoulder and told reporters are not invited to this. Could you please leave? So I waited in the hallway for a while. Um, and then I started seeing all these school board members showing up just one by one on their own. Um, and I had seen uh, one or two in the room. And so I think, Monica, you realize this, too, or several reporters realized individually mm -hmm. um, that there was a quorum of school board members. And we we returned because that is the definition of a public meeting. And we had gotten some video while we were in there before being asked to leave. Mm -hmm. And when we were essentially kicked out nicely, I started combing through the video trying to pinpoint is that a school board member? Mm. I can't tell. This person's distinctive mm. looking. I think this is so-and-so. Um, there is an old adage that I've thought of at points in the last couple of days, which is uh, to say the cover-up is worse than the crime. I don't know if that's the case here. I don't, I'm not saying there's been a crime, but there has been a real opaqueness, a lack of transparency with all of this uh, in the last couple of days. We're chatting about um, a mess that's playing out in the Durham Public Schools here on the North Carolina News Roundup on Due South here uh, on WUNC. Uh, I, we need to roll it forward in a minute or two because we need to get to, to multiple other topics. But I do want to point to the one short-term result of this and maybe get a, a sense from both Liz and Monica about what might happen next. Uh, there are a lot of people that did not show up to work because of this this week. Some buses didn't run. Some schools didn't have cafeterias open. Can you contextualize? I know of at least one school where there, where, where that was the case. Um, I spoke to a principal. Um, can you give us a, a, a contextualization of just how many people didn't show up and where that could go from here? That's a little bit of a speculative question. But if you have 1,300 people who are mad and these are people who you need to run a school, this is quite worrisome. And this is happening organically, too. This is individual decisions by employees. I haven't received exact numbers. I've asked of how many are out. Um, I talked to a ground supervisor who said more than half of his crews were out. Um, so I don't have specific numbers. I don't know if you've heard any more specific. I do also want to I do want to say, though, that um, bus drivers were not directly affected by this. Other transportation workers were. That is what's been happening with the buses, um, is that supervisors and mechanics have not been showing up to work because they are affected. And it appears that some bus drivers are walking out in solidarity. Have you heard more on numbers, Monica? A, a bit. And I, I want to build off of what you said there because um, there are rules for the buses around mechanics and supervisors needing to be there for drivers to be able to go out. So on Wednesday, which was the first day there was any kind of whether you call it a coordinated call-out or not, we could call it a mass call-out at least. Mm -hmm. On Wednesday, 50 drivers didn't drive. That doesn't mean they didn't show up to work. Some of them did and were not able to drive. Durham was also operating on that two-hour delay Wednesday morning, I believe. Yeah. Well, I heard the district had other administrators there to hand out bus assignments, but I think that once bus drivers realized what was going on, they chose to go home, And some of them. With, as it has been explained to me through a couple of side conversations, if you're a bus driver, you want the the support. You want to know that there are mechanics in house if there is an issue, uh, whether there are kids on the bus or not. And on a morning like Wednesday, when uh, the temperatures are down, where there were some spots of black ice, like it 
seems not particularly smart to be driving a bus around if you don't have the the maintenance and mechanical staff uh, at your disposal there to help you, uh, which I think was was part of the reason that that, uh, this played out. North Carolina News Roundup here on uh, Due South. This is a story we are going to continue to follow before we move on. I want to play a clip for you from Dr. Pascal Mabenga, who is the DPS superintendent. Um, there is a bus that breaks down, and those mechanics are the ones that fix in those buses. And uh, for, for example, today it was really cold. Uh, for some of those buses to start, you have to have a mechanic to, to make sure that uh, they're working on those buses. Uh, fortunately for us, we're able to work with our surrounding district. Uh, we have a couple mechanics that came and, uh, to help us today. Quick note here as well. Due South has requested an interview uh, with Superintendent Mabenga. We have not heard back yet. That's an open invitation. So if you're listening, uh, Dr. Mabenga, come on by and we'll have a little chat about what is playing out. And again, that million dollar question, how this transpired. 1,300 people uh, seeing their paychecks drop potentially here in a couple weeks uh, or uh, beyond, depending on state law and all that. Uh, All right. Due South Roundup. Let's move to a couple of other education uh, notes. I want to um, note that UNC Chapel Hill has uh, a new interim chancellor. Uh, began this week. Lee Roberts takes over for Kevin Guskowitz. Lee Roberts uh, is a former state budget director. Kevin Guskowitz, the most recent UNC Chapel Hill chancellor, departed uh, for Michigan State. Uh, and the new interim chancellor spoke with WNC higher ed reporter Brianna Atkinson earlier this week. And there was a lot of conversation about this in the wake of the the Supreme Court decision, obviously. We need to make sure that everybody in this state, and of course more broadly, recognizes that this is an institution for them, where they can belong, where they are welcome, and where they can be successful. Okay, so clearly a, a platitude there. What Can we unpack that a little bit? What is uh, Lee Roberts talking about, or, or what is he getting at uh, as we uh, as, as we hear about UNC needing to be um, just maybe not more inclusive, but continue to be an inclusive and welcoming space. You want to you touch that one, Monica? One thing that uh, he discussed with another WRL reporter, Sarah Kruger, was um, resources for students, for faculty, for staff. And he talked a little bit about how his background, while not in higher education or academia, is all about kind of going after those resources. Uh, that's one thing he said he was planning to focus on when, when we spoke with him as well. Uh, we have a an interview and we have more coverage on Lee Roberts, uh, who uh, is the new UNC interim chancellor at our website, wnc.org. Uh, Liz, quick update. If there is one, do we have a timeline for when UNC Chapel Hill will name a permanent uh, chancellor? Do we have any sense of that at this point? I don't know that, but Brianna might. Okay. Um, There is a a fluidity uh, within the university system. I will tell you about another uh, chancellor change on the other side. This is the North Carolina News Roundup on Due South, talking news and politics. Uh, On the other side, there are... uh, There's some interesting litigation that has been filed in New Hanover County. We will discuss that uh, and also perhaps what is on tap this weekend. Remember that you can engage with us. If you've got a story, question, or political thought, do south at wunc.org. And uh, for past segments and conversations, you can visit dosouthradio.org. 
Welcome back. It's Due South on North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. It's Friday. We're getting caught up on uh, many of the news and political stories from across the old North State here in studio with Monica Casey, Will Doran, and Liz Schlemmer. Danielle Battaglia is on the line uh, from Washington, D.C. We're less than a month from uh, V-Day. When you think of love songs, what comes to mind first? Sam Cooke, Etta James, John Legend, perhaps? We're working on our next Due South installment of Southern Mixtape. It's all about love songs, and it'll be uh, hitting your ear just in time for Valentine's Day. We'd like to feature your favorite tracks. What are your go-to love songs, whether it's for yourself or a companion? Please email us at south at wunc.org. You guys want to start there? You want to weigh in? You got any favorite love songs? You did not know that question was coming. We can go right to news if you want. If you have a love song, you want to jump in. Danielle, are you thinking of a love song? I'm, oh, maybe. I don't even remember who it's by, but Marry Me. It's gorgeous. Marry oh, by me. Train. By Train. Thank you. Yes, Train. <laughs> My fiance and I have been debating what our first dance song will be Ooh. in our wedding, and I'm advocating for "In My Life" by the Beatles. Oh which yeah, kind of like That's a, a sound, yeah. like, but I think it's really beautiful. That's a beautiful That's very song. Nice. I got married about two months ago, and we used "Stand by Me" by Benny King, and it was it was perfect. We wanted something classic, so that was also my first dance song oh, in my hey. wedding. Oh. <laughs> We're chatting news and love here on uh, the North Carolina Friday News Roundup. Uh, we're going to tick through some other stories from this week, and I'll have you uh, welcome you all in at different points. If you uh, want to jump in, just give me eyes or a little hand or something. Um, North Carolina Central University Chancellor Johnson Akinlea will retire at the end of the academic year. He has led the university since June of uh, 2017. This announcement came, and there was uh, appreciation for the job that he has done. Yeah, we were just talking about love. I think he is a pretty beloved chancellor over at NC Central. I spoke with the president of the Alumni Association there, and she essentially told me she feels like he's fulfilled all of his promises. If you look at the capital improvement projects at NC Central, that campus looks really different than it did when he first got there. There are new residence halls, I believe the new business school, the new student union. The woman I spoke with said they have Chick-fil-A now. We didn't have Chick-fil-A when they were there. So he's uh, leaving a good taste in people's mouths. And do we have any sense of timing on when the next chancellor will be named at NCCU? Not yet. They have not named an interim chancellor either since he won't be retiring until June. I think they have a little bit more wiggle room there than maybe Chapel Hill does. Got it. Okay. Uh, In New Hanover County, that's where Wilmington is located, the county has filed a lawsuit against a dozen companies for water contamination. The defendants include Comores and DuPont, corporations which have dumped so-called forever chemicals into the Cape Fear River Basin for decades. Commissioner Dane Scalise says that the aim of this lawsuit isn't just to recover financial uh, hardship, but also to really raise awareness. This is a systemic issue. We do not want the people of this county to be poisoned by anybody. And unfortunately, some of these chemicals that are out there have a tendency to do just that. That's New Hanover County Commissioner Dane Scalise speaking with member station WHQR in Wilmington. Will, litigation, is this, how important of a a point is this in this story? Well, I mean, this has been going on since 2017 when we first discovered that there was this Gen X pollution in the Cape Fear, which, you know, is the main source of drinking water for all of southeastern North Carolina, essentially. Um, You know, this litigation is just one of many. Um, You know, there were some state AGs, including Josh Stein here in North Carolina, who sued uh, Chemours and DuPont and I believe a couple other companies back in uh, 2020 and settled in uh, last year for over a billion dollars. You know, now that was a national settlement. Um, 
But there was some question at the time of, you know, whether uh, the, you know, the Wilmington area local governments would actually take part in that settlement or if they would, you know, kind of push forward with their own individual litigation. And obviously we're, we're seeing that here. There's also class action lawsuits against these companies that have been moving forward. Um, you know, so there's just lawsuits on lawsuits on lawsuits. And, you know, it's it's an important issue. I mean, you know, people's drinking water and there is a lot of indication, not necessarily scientific proof, but a lot of supposition that, you know, these can these chemicals you know, cause cancer, cause yeah. birth defects and that the companies potentially knew about this and illegally dumped it into the river anyways. And from a geographic standpoint, I mean, we're talking about chemicals that have gone into water in the, uh, some of the chemicals that have gone in, in Cumberland County, down to New Hanover County. So we're talking about an area of impact that 15, 20% of the people who now live in the state, like you're talking about a large area uh, and Wilmington uh, draws its drinking water from this source. So um, yeah, I, I spoke points. with uh, Wilmington mayor, uh, former mayor Harper Peterson. This is probably a couple of years ago, um, but I mean, he was telling people not to drink the water um, in the town because he was so concerned about you know what it was going to do um, you know for particularly for pregnant women, um, but you know really you know anyone with uh, you know potential health scares. And some of these class action lawsuits say that you know this part of the state has incredibly elevated levels of liver cancer kidney cancer that they think are directly tied to some of this stuff. And, you know, we should note it's not just, you know, the the PFAS chemicals that were being dumped into the river, you know, by the company. It's also, I mean, you know, these chemicals can be found in, you know, microwave popcorn bags right, and right. firefighting foam that the military uses and, you know, just tons, tons of other, you know, just kind of everyday uses that you never even think about. Good context. Thank you. That's Will Doran, WRAL uh, state government reporter. Also here is Monica Casey, Durham reporter for WRAL. Liz Schlemmer, education reporter at WNC. And Danielle Battaglia uh, is with us on the line. Danielle, I'm coming back to you in just a moment. You've been sitting quietly and uh, patiently, of course. Uh, I want to drop in a little bit of an ad, uh, a relatively new campaign ad. This is from Bill Graham, uh, who is a Republican seeking the gubernatorial nomination. Uh, he does not have quite the name recognition of uh, Mark Robinson, but he is going after his opponent. Mark Robinson, he suggested the Holocaust wasn't real, downplayed the Nazis, promoted Hitler propaganda. That's just plain wrong. I'm Bill Graham. The Holocaust was real. Hitler was evil. Well, Dorn, we're not necessarily uh, learning anything new about the rhetoric of Mark Robinson, but this is a new ad. What can you tell us about I don't know how it's been received or if we think there's a, a way for Bill Graham to make up what is perceived as a difference in polling and uh, expectation heading into the March primary. Yeah, I mean, the the gubernatorial primary is really kind of in lo a lot of ways a mirror of the Republican presidential primary. You've got Mark Robinson, who's really aligned closely with, you know, Trump and sort of the MAGA wing of the party. And then, you know, Bill Graham and also State Treasurer Dale Falwell, who's also running are kind of the more establishment picks. Right. Um, and um, Graham in particular, he's a wealthy attorney from Salisbury. He yeah. said that he's going to plan to drop millions of dollars from his own personal fortune into this race to, to get these ads on the airwaves, to, to convince people that, you know, essentially Robinson uh, is too extreme to win a general election here in North Carolina. And, you know, he's kind of voicing this concern that, hey, you know, if, if we have Trump on the ballot and Mark Robinson, then that's going to turn off a lot of kind of middle of the road voters and it's going to hand the governor's office to a Democrat. You know, people remember Roy Cooper when he won it in 2016. It was 
10,000 votes, I think, out of 5 million. It it was the thinnest of margins. And so, you know, any, you know, any slight deviation can can decide a race here. Margins very well could be extremely close. We think about 2020, we had a state Supreme Court justice race uh, between um, Sherry Beasley and Paul Newby that was uh, it was decided by le- 400, 400 votes. votes. Yeah, yeah. Out of six million or six and a half. Million. I mean, this is this is, an, you know, a, a, an incredibly small percentage. Uh, Danielle Battaglia, uh, to the extent that congressional uh, members of Congress from North Carolina's delegation are paying attention to and care uh, and are weighing in on this governor's race, and perhaps more illustrative or interesting, uh, the fissures, the the fractures within the Republican Party. What are you hearing, and and what have you what have you gathered from them about the Bill Graham, Dale Falwell, Mark Robinson nom- nomination race? Primary. Well, I'm fascinated just with the Republican factions that are going on, anyways. Um, I believe Tom Tillis came out and supported Bill Graham over Mark Robinson. Yep. Um, otherwise I don't feel like I've heard a lot from the delegation themselves. I could be wrong on that. Ted, Budd, um, Ted Budd is backing, um, Robinson in the race. So it's a little bit of Tillis sense. versus Bud <laughs> yep. there. Yeah. There's Which, a lot of Tillis versus Bud. Like they don't vote the same. It's very interesting to watch, but that goes back to the factions. Like one of the things that I'm looking closely at this election is just like endorsements of club for growth versus, um, Americans for prosperity versus the Trump endorsements and what do all these mean? And just they don't add up to what you normally see in like if we were talking in 2016. Yeah, that might not be fair. But so we had Iowa on Tuesday, Danielle, first in the nation uh, presidential primary coming Tuesday, the 23rd in the usually forgotten but really relevant at the moment Granite State, New Hampshire. I grew up in Massachusetts, so I can throw a little bit of shade. Uh, There was shade. Nikki Haley, I, I, I'm 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 gleaning from all the national reporting that you know this could be close. Are you buying? Are you buying that narrative? I might have bought it before last week or this week yeah. uh, before I saw the Iowa results. But now that I've seen Iowa, I'm not buying it. I'm really curious what the results will say after New Hampshire. But that margin was not as close as you would think from the reporting we were seeing prior. Do you uh, care to offer any assessment of how uh, tight or not tight you expect this uh, outcome to be come Tuesday in New Hampshire? No. Okay. That's wise. <laughs> I, uh, I'm, always, I'm always wrong. Will Doran, you're a, a government reporter. This is a presidential race, and it has not come to our state with any great frequency yet. Uh, any takeaways from uh, the first caucus and uh, as, uh, our, as our attention turns to the first primary? Well, I think the main takeaway is people need to uh, start paying attention. Actually, today, ballots are going out in North Carolina. You, you say, what? The primary is in March. Nope. If you requested a mail-in ballot already, those ballots are hitting the mail today. So people are going to be voting, uh, you know, within a couple of days, and it's just going to start heating up. Um, you know, Joe Biden's the only Democrat on the Democratic primary, so, you know, there's obviously a competitive primary for the Democrats for the governor's race, not so much for the uh, the presidential race. Mm-hmm. But uh, on the Republican side, I think there's seven 
candidates who yep. are on the ballot, but I'm I'm not sure that there's anyone who expects anyone but Donald Trump to get that nomination. Final few moments of the North Carolina News Roundup uh, News and Politics here on Due South on WUNC. Uh, Will, I, there's another story I had in the queue. I want to turn back to you uh, for some news this week involving State Supreme Court Justice Anita Earls. Uh, this involves an ethics uh, quandary and uh, your reporting ties directly into it. So uh, the update, please. Yes. So uh, Supreme Court Justice Anita Earls, uh, she is one of uh, two Democrats on the seven-member state Supreme Court, uh, the only black member of the court. She has been suing the State uh, Judicial Standards Commission, kind of like an ethics watchdog for judges, um, over an investigation that they have been uh, undertaking into her. And uh, we learned this week that they have dropped their investigation uh, with no discipline recommended, and she has dropped her lawsuit against the state. So Everyone kind of resolved there. Um, she had been investigated uh, for making some comments about uh, instances of racial gender biases that she had seen even on the state's highest court. Yeah. And uh, there's you know rules against judges impugning uh, the uh, the credibility of the court system. Uh, but she said, "Hey, I've you know the First Amendment still exists. Like we're allowed to talk about these things." And so it seems to have resolved uh, with with everyone just kind of dropping their investigations. Um, I will say they actually began investigating her originally um, due to an article I wrote, um, although nobody ever reached out to me for the investigation. So they uh, they clearly weren't too interested. Uh, it, it had looked at some rule changes going on at the Supreme Court uh, uh-huh. that critics had called power grabs. Uh, the new Republican majority had said, we'll just make things easier. Um, uh, apparently that's how the investigation began. Uh, so, but it's that has been dropped. The the other the newer investigation into her comments on racism and sexism has been dropped. So it seems that everything is, uh, you know, it's politics, and the investigatory nature of some of these things can always leave us going, huh? Why? Why now? But do you have a sense of why they came to this resolution, a seeming seemingly a resolution now? You know, it's always embarrassing uh, for just kind of everyone involved when a state Supreme Court justice is suing state government uh, and, you know, the judicial watchdog and, you know, they're fighting each other and, you know, accusing each other of political motivations. And, you know, it's just kind of it's a lot cleaner to just sort of make it all go away. Capital D dysfunction. Uh, We're less than a month away until early voting. Uh, opens, commences here for the Super Tuesday, March 5th primary in North Carolina. Uh, next week on Due South, we will have uh, some coverage of the Council of State races. For those of you who are unfamiliar, and no offense, I know that many folks are unfamiliar with that Council of State. It's 10 statewide offices. We're going to have a conversation about what those uh, roles do, why they are important, and we will also uh, spend some time focusing on uh, the treasurer's race as well as the superintendent of public instruction. That is uh, slotted for next Wednesday here uh, on Due South. If you'll indulge me, we're going to have just a bit of a sport note here on the way out because I'm a sporty kind kind of guy. Uh, Hurricanes at home tonight against the Detroit Red Wings, uh, 7 o'clock, puck drop. And then on Sunday, they uh, host the Minnesota Wild in men's college basketball. We've got NC State welcoming Virginia Tech tomorrow at noon. Fourth-ranked Carolina travels to Boston College. That's a 2.15 tip. And number seven, Duke at home tomorrow night against a not-so-good Pitt team. But I'm curious because I know you are a fellow college basketball follower, Will Dorn, and we'll come to you, Monica and Liz, in a moment if you would like. Uh, What's streaming uh, on uh, one of your devices this weekend? Oh, just, you know. Sports or not sports. 
All, all the sports, you know. I mean, you know, there's you got the NFL playoffs happening. You got college basketball heating up. Um, I'm really excited for the ACC tournament this year. I know that's still a couple of months away, but I mean, you know, uh, you know, my Tar Heels are in first place, and you know, you've got NC State and FSU in second place, and their only losses are to UNC. Um, you know, you got Duke right behind them, so you know things are going to heat up and get pretty spicy, and I think it's going to be a fun basketball season. Monica, Casey, one thing that you're going to uh, stream this weekend. Probably some HGTV. I've uh, we're house hunting, so I've oh. been on my HGTV kick as of two weeks ago. Nice. It's a rough time to be house hunting, still, isn't it? It's oh. not great. Wish her luck and move on, Liz. Wish her luck and move on. Good, good luck, luck. Good luck, Liz. Uh, I don't. I'm attending a wedding this weekend. Oh, I don't think I'm gonna be fun. watching a lot of TV. There's have a lot fun. of fun. Look fancy, events. Danielle Battaglia. One thing you're watching this weekend. Probably some nerdy documentary. Nerdy. I don't know which one yet. Nerdy documentary. <laughs> I like it. Danielle Battaglia is Capitol Hill correspondent at McClatchy Liz Schlemmer, education reporter at WNC, Monica Casey, Durham reporter at WRAL, and Will Dorn, state government reporter at WRAL. Panel, thanks so much for the knowledge. This is Due South, a production of WNC and a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Cole Del Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever is our executive producer. And that theme music is produced by Quilla. For my co-host, Leonita Inge, I'm Jeff Tiberi. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk to you again on Monday.